You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I'd ask you to take your Bibles this morning, look at Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. This morning we have come to remember, to remember what Christ has done, his death, his sacrifice, his burial, and resurrection. And one of the most complete statements of the design, purpose, and significance of his death, believe it or not, is found in the Old Testament. It's found here in Isaiah 52 and 53. And so what I'd like to do this morning is read our text, Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13 through Isaiah 53, and then make some statements about what we read and see. And as we do this this morning, I would ask those of you who are familiar with the text, Isaiah 53 in particular, if you would strive to hear it like you're hearing it for the first time, to think about what it's describing, about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 52, starting at verse number 15, or, I'm sorry, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished or shocked at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouth at him. For that which hath not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. Who hath believed our reports? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall, many, shall my righteous servants justify many? For he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to know something this morning, that the word of God, what's central in the word of God, is redemption. Redemption. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the story is that of Jesus, and the central theme is that of redemption. We see it in Scripture, all of Scripture. We see it in our understanding of God and men, who we are and who he is, and we see it in his saving power, that it's all about the redemption of mankind. And this is so central to Scripture that God wants us to keep this thought of redemption fresh in our minds always. Case in point, the two ordinances that Jesus Christ gave, the two things that he said, church, this is what you must do, baptism, which we experienced last week in our church. It was a beautiful time. Communion, what we'll experience this morning. Show vividly the death, the suffering, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is to be fresh in our minds. And we this morning are to remember. And we come to the text in Isaiah. And again, there is not a greater text that tells the design, the purpose, and significance of what Jesus Christ has done. So, as we look into the text this morning, a couple things that you need to know. Number one, Isaiah was written over 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years. I I, I don't know that we can fathom that amount, right? Been a nation for 150. Written 700 years. And as you read the text, it is so clear that Isaiah the prophet is speaking about the servant that would come, clearly, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is so clear that even the skeptic who reads Isaiah 53 says, obviously, That has to be Jesus. But they get out of it by saying, well, the early church must have inserted this into the text because there's no way 700 years before the event, Isaiah could have seen this event and recorded it as he did. People thought that for a long, long time. Until the 1940s. When a little boy named Mohammed was just going around some caves in Qumran. And he came across some scrolls that were housed in jars. They later became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's fascinating about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that in those scrolls, scrolls, there's a fragment of every Old Testament book that was written except for Esther. And so they found these scrolls in the 40s. And then they found the scroll of Isaiah. They opened it up. These scrolls were written about 200 years before the birth of Christ. And as they opened up Isaiah 53, do you know what they found? Isaiah 53, just as we have it today. The prophecy of Christ. And so this morning, we can take great comfort in knowing that our God knows the end from the beginning. We have a faith that is rooted in history. We have a faith that is true and is real. And here in Isaiah now, the writer will tell us about this servant of the Lord. He's mentioned in other places, and we know that it is Christ. But keep this in mind, as we work our way through five sections of our text, and they will go quickly, so just hang on. 
But for the, the, the Old Testament state, when they thought of the Messiah, this servant of the Lord, what they thought of was a king, a ruler who would deliver them, and he would rule with a rod of iron. He would be majestic and powerful, and he would solve all of their problems. And so this is their hope. This is what they're looking for. And yet we come to Isaiah 52, and, and there's a different picture here that I'm sure they could not understand. But looking back now, it is clear to you and to me. Let's look at Isaiah 52, verse number 13. And we start with the, the mystery of this servant, because he's mysterious. It, what we're about to hear doesn't quite make sense and jive with what these Old Testament saints would have thought or believed. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. And the idea is that, that this servant of the Lord will come and he will act wisely. And what he does, he will succeed. His life will be a success. But then it's strange. Verse 14 says, and many were shocked at his appearance. He was so marred and disfigured that he did not even look like a man. And, and for the Jewish mind, thinking about the Messiah, the king, this doesn't make any sense. How could it be that this servant of the Lord would have his face disfigured and marred so much so? He doesn't look like a man. They're astonished by this. But then he says in verse 15, He shall sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. Just as he shocked humanity by the brutality he experienced in his suffering, he, sue, he would also shock them in a coming day when their mouths would be open wide because they would see him in his resplendent glory. And the writer is telling us, listen, there's a mystery about this one coming. He will be brutally treated. He will suffer. He will die on a cross. But he will come as a king someday, and every mouth will be stopped. Stopped. The mystery of the servant. He goes on now and talks about the rejection of the servant. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, he says, Who has believed our reports? And the report is just what we heard in Isaiah 52, but it's more than that. The entire Bible, the Old Testament, points to this coming one, the Messiah. And here's the report. He would be born from the tribe of Judah. He'd come out of Bethlehem. That's where he'd be born. He would minister to the poor and needy. He would heal the sick, the lame, the deaf, the blind. And Psalm 16 tells us that this one would rise again from the dead. So Isaiah says, who's even believed this report? And the answer is, very few. It, it, it doesn't make sense. It's astonishing that this would be the one who would come. And then he goes on to talk about his rejection. He comes and he's rustic, he's humble, he certainly doesn't look like a king. There is no royalty, this comeliness, this majesty. He doesn't look like that. And not only that, the Bible tells us that he is rejected. Verse number 3 goes on to say, He was rejected, forsaken by men, regarded as an offense by those around him, despised, and we concluded in our estimation that he was just plain nothing. Nothing. It's mysterious. We don't understand this. But this servant will be rejected. As we see him, there's nothing to draw us to him. He's not majestic and royal. We esteemed him as nothing. Now we see the atonement of the Savior. 
the satisfaction made to the God of heaven for our sin. Verse 4, surely or truly, here's the truth about this servant. He bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted. We know what happens here, but as we look at Christ on the cross, it seems as he must have done something tragic and terrible because the wrath of God is being poured out on his head. And so the world looks and says, hmm, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. I don't know what this guy did, but it must have been tragic. It must have been terrible. God is angry at him. And the writer goes on to explain about this atonement. He says that he was wounded for our transgressions. The wounding by the nails for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. The beating, the carrying of the cross, the spear. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment of Calvary on him for us. And by his stripes we are healed. And so the writer makes it clear, this this servant who's mysterious, who is rejected, it's about an atonement in his life and in his work. He will make satisfaction to the God of heaven. He was wounded for our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, and for our healing. And verse 6 tells us that we're all included in this. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. The, the truth is, sheep, are a, uh, they're a herd animal. They stay in flocks, but they're prone to wander. And what the writer tells us is, we're all like sheep. In our nature, we are prone to wander. It doesn't take much. We are sinners by nature. But then he says, we are sinners by choice. Each and every one of us, we turned everyone to his own way. We say, we will not have this man rule over us. I will do my own thing. I am autonomous. I will rule and I will reign. The writer says, that's our attitude. But the Lord laid on him the personal sin and guilt of us all. Now we see the submission of this servant. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He submitted to suffering. This is what Christ did. As a servant of the Lord, he submits to suffering. He doesn't open his mouth. There's no guile found in his mouth. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile again. When he's threatened, he doesn't answer. He goes quietly and he submits to the suffering of the cross. Why? For himself? No. For you and for me. He then submits to death. Verse 8 tells us that he snatched away and hurried off from one illegal trial to the next. Both Jewish and Roman. It was a farce. It was a facade. There wasn't any truth to it. And he's hurried off and snatched away. He submits to death, and then he submits to burial. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. I wonder if the Old Testament saints who read this passage, if it ever dawned on them what verse 9 is saying, because the phrase that he made his grave with the wicked, the word wicked there is plural. It's more than one. And the writer says, Christ made his grave with the wicked more than one person, like two thieves on a cross. And I wonder if they notice that the word rich there is singular. Singular. And with the rich in his death, 
It wasn't plural anymore. There was one man, one rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. And, and, and Isaiah sees this 700 years before that the servant submitted to these things. And then finally, the exaltation. Because of his faithfulness, because of his submitting, he is exalted. Verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And that just doesn't sound right. It it sounds sadistic. Why would the father be pleased to crush the son? It's not sadistic. Rather, this sacrifice accomplishes the purpose of God. This sacrifice is pleasing because in this sacrifice, in this offering of the soul, Jesus Christ will purchase our pardon and redemption, and the fallen race can be forgiven and saved. And so the Father is pleased to crush the Son. And the verses that follow show the evidence of the success of our Lord's offering of himself. We say it's efficacious. It produces the intended result. Here's what this offering for sin, his own soul, produces for us. Verse number 10, he will see his seed, his offspring. Christ dies on the cross, but he will see his seed, his offspring. What does that mean? Many sons and daughters will come to glory because of his sacrifice. Verse 10 continues, he will prolong his days. We find he's cut off, we find he dies, and then it says he will prolong his days. What does that mean? It means this, that death, hell, and the grave have no power over our Savior anymore. He's conquered all of it. And not only has he conquered all of it, those who follow him will conquer death, hell, and the grave. This is the glory of his sacrifice. Not only that, verse number 10 goes on to say, and the pleasure or the plan of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What's the plan of the Lord? That there's a new covenant. There's an, a mediator, a new mediator, who will, who will make men holy. His light will go to all nations, salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 11 goes on to say that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That in this sacrifice of himself, he will see the travail. And it's okay. He's satisfied. Why? Because he gains his reward. What's his reward? The bride. The church, you and me, it satisfies him. Verse 11 continues to say, by his knowledge, he will justify many. And because of his sacrifice for sin, there is now no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is not the name of Mohammed. It is not the name of Buddha. It is not the name of Confucius. It is not the name of Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or anyone. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And because he's made himself an offering for sin, he has been highly exalted, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the sacrifice that he made. It was pleasing to the Father. And verse 12 says that, that because of his sacrifice, that he will receive divine gifts from the Father. Verse 12 says, he will give him a portion with the great and divide his spoil with the strong. Now, because of Jesus Christ, all nations are his inheritance, every one of them. And the armies of heaven will follow him 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And as the writer closes off this portion of scripture, he says something very interesting to us. He then tells us why the father loves the son, loves the servant. And he gives four things. I want to just give you the last thing and go backwards because the three sort of go together. Look at verse number 12. He says, therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So the father has this servant, the son. It's mysterious how this works out. The majestic one will be so marred that they don't see and understand why this would happen to him, and yet there's coming a day when the kings of the world will shut their mouth. He's rejected by men. We esteem him as nothing, but this rejection is an atonement for you and I. It's what he does. Then he is exalted, and in this exaltation, God says, I am pleased with him. Why? Because he has made intercession for the transgressor. Listen to me. We now, because of Jesus Christ, we have a high priest in heaven. We have one that now sits. As a matter of fact, that word intercession, it's continually. That's a verb. Continually. He continually makes intercession for his children. Listen, I don't need an earthly priest. I have one who goes before the throne, who pleads my case, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus, and he stands before the throne today for you and for me and says, Father, he's mine. She's mine. They're mine. Plead the blood. I've sacrificed everything for them. Father, forgive. Father, bless. Father, encourage. Father, help. I make intercession for them. We have a great high priest this morning because of Christ's sacrifice. There are three other things that sort of go together. Why is the Father pleased? Why does he love the Son, the servant? He makes intercession. He goes before the throne for us. But then notice the three things prior to this. He says he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many. Jesus Christ is perfect. He is perfect in his beauty, in his splendor, in his power, in his majesty. And we know and understand that, those of us who know him. But can I tell you what makes Jesus Christ so beautiful to the Father and what ought to make him so beautiful to us? It is not the glory of his majesty and his coming rule and reign. It is the glory of his shame. It is the beauty of of his suffering. It is in the beauty of his death that he died for me and he died for you. And when we see him in that light, when we remember the bread and the cup this morning, Christ is altogether lovely. He's lovely. And then it says he was numbered with transgressors. That Jesus Christ walked among us. 
They had no problem with the harlot. They had no problem with the publican. He ate and sat and fellowshiped with them. He is a friend of sinners. He's not ashamed to call you and I his brother and his sister this morning. He associates with sinful men and women. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then he bare the sin of many. This morning we come to remember the beauty of Christ. And the fact that he gave his life for you and for me. The Father loves him for that. And we ought to love him for that. Believer, this morning, do we understand what we have? I mean, really, do we understand what we have? We have it all. We, we have it all through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me finish with this quote from Spurgeon this morning. Speaking of redemption, he says, He forgives our sins with the desire or design of curing our sinfulness. We are pardoned that we might become holy. And so we come together this morning to celebrate the Lord's table and to remember. To remember him and his glory and his beauty and his sacrifice, his atonement. What he's done for us and what we have now in him. And we should rejoice and remember. But the truth of the matter is this. It doesn't stop there. He forgives us to cure us. He pardons us to make us holy. And so we come here in this time, with this supper, to remember this is what Christ has done for us. Oh God, cleanse me, make me whole, make me pure, help me to live in line with you and with one another. With one another. My friend, listen to me. This communion service reminds us of what Christ has done for us and what we ought to do for one another. To love, to forgive, um, to, to, to help, to encourage, to, to let those things where we've had trouble to be made right, to, to, to fellowship and have unity with one another. And if we don't do that, this place comes like every other place. But because of what Christ has done, we can glory in him this morning, remembering him, and we can love one another and show the world what the body of Christ truly looks like. And so, this morning, let us remember. Let us remember the servant Savior, who was so marred he didn't look like a man, and is coming someday to rule and reign. This is our Savior. And what he's accomplished for us is unbelievable, and we should glory in that this morning. I'll ask the men to come now as we prepare to serve the Lord's Supper this morning.